Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. That doesn't sound good. Somebody call Elon Musk right now. We have a technical problem here. He's not available? He's rehearsing? What would he be rehearsing for? So actually, no, that's one of our topics today on the nose is Elon Musk will be the host of Saturday Night Live tomorrow night. That'll be our first topic today. A little bit later, we'll talk about, well, it's, there's the list in Rolling Stone of the 100, 100 best sitcoms. I don't find lists of that kind to be particularly interesting, but it's a nice opportunity to talk about what sitcoms are, what they do for us, how they might also have changed whether or not their theme songs play without having to skip all over the place. Uh, all kinds of things that we can talk <laughs> about. Baby, it wondered what became me. That would be the WKRP song, played the way that ours displayed. Uh, all right, so, and then a little bit later, we're going to talk about This is a Robbery. Uh, this is a, a docu-series on Netflix about the theft at the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 1990. Uh, of all kinds of priceless things. Uh, and so, uh, first of all, let's welcome onto the show. I'm a little bit rattled here by what happened with the uh, with the theme music, so uh, excuse me for that. But uh, two of our favorite panelists, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, tool user, as it turns out, uh, <laughs> founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance. The tool user thing is a reference to a recent commercial gig uh, that Carolyn had when she was... What were you posing? You were posing with something that... Hangs something from something else, right? Uh, yeah, I guess in that specific one, it's a level. But I shot, uh, I shot a day of ads for Dewalt tools, and uh, they had somebody there from Dewalt who had to teach me how to use all the tools. Um, but I think I look like I really know what I'm doing. I, I feel proud about it. All right. So if you get any like loose t- tiles or anything in your house, call Carolyn Payne. If she's not too busy, she'll come over. Uh, Bill Usman, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. We have no information about whether or not he is handy. Um, I, I am the opposite yeah. of handy. Would would that be footy? Yeah, footy. You would be footy. footy. Yeah, you're very footy. Uh, but I but I have been called a tool. Okay, from so, time to time. So there you go. So does that count? Yeah, that's our Papulian through line uh, from guest to All guest. Right. So uh, we're going to begin with uh, Elon Musk. Uh, he is the host of Saturday Night Live tomorrow night. Uh, and Miley Cyrus is the musical guest. Uh, and I mean, before we sort of get into this, I mean, it, it's worth noting that Musk has appeared on other stuff. He was in Iron Man 2. He's in the Big Bang Theory for um, uh, a cameo in a couple of seconds. You'll also hear uh, another cameo uh, that he did that kind of is also a Papulian through line between our two segments. But um, so I'm kind of saving and I'm building up excitement. But, you know, in recent years, he's I don't know, he's started to be kind of a crank. He does weird things. He gave his kid a weird mathematical formula name. Uh, he got himself involved in the plan to save the soccer players trapped in the cave in Thailand and then attacked one of the divers who actually did uh, perform the actual rescue with unfounded accus- accusations of pedophilia. Uh, he denied the severity of the co- coronavirus pandemic. And, I mean, there's sort of a sense in which Elon Musk 
may be understood as a little bit less of an asset these days than, and a little bit more of something that sounds vaguely like asset uh, than he was understood before. So, but Carolyn, let's begin here. You actually think that Saturday Night Live might be able to get something a little bit fresher going out uh, of a guest hosting thing like this. Yeah, I'm excited about this. I don't know if it's because it's like kind of morbid curiosity, like wanting to see the train wreck. Because here's the thing. So SNL, you have this cast of like top-notch comedians and improvisers, and they're going to be paired with this, you know, I mean, sure, he's done these cameos, but it's like kind of mostly just playing himself. So I think that this is going to be a challenge for the cast. I think it's going to make it like wild and exciting. And I actually am looking forward to this more than, you know, more than I was to see like Nick Jonas host, like whatever. Sure. But Elon, <laughs> like this, oh, totally off the rails. And I am there for it. I also love all his tweets suggesting all the sketches he should be in. <laughs> right, including, well, actually, he initially said he tweeted that he had some skits in mind. And yes. somebody, Chris Rudd, Rudd, I think, uh, from the cast had to say, well, first of all, I'll call them sketches. Um, skits are kind of what, you know, your employees do at the cafeteria, you know, and somebody, somebody's leaving or something. Uh, so, so yeah, Bill, I, I don't know. We, uh, you, Michael Che had an interesting take in a radio interview he did. He said, you know, uh, he said, black people love their billionaires. You know, if we were having Oprah on, everybody would like, really be really happy. Because <laughs> white people don't like their billionaires very much. And that seems to be part of the problem here. But I don't know. There's some questions about whether Musk is a neutral enough figure to, to, you know, to be a comedy host. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think you necessarily need to be a neutral Mm -hmm. figure, but can you be a really, really, really awful figure? (laughs) Um, I think Carolyn's right that, you know, part, part, I think part of the appeal of this, and I think this is what SNL is actually hoping for, is that people think it's going to go off the rails. And so, you know, they're going to watch just to see it go off the rails. We read one piece um, in The Atlantic about this, where the author, you know, she is just totally against this. She thinks the whole thing is what she calls a trap. And she thinks even talking about it is a trap of course she's writing about it so you know did she fall into that trap (laughs) but but i think she in that particular piece i kind of feel like she overstates the case about how terrible this is i i do think by all accounts as you said colin musk is a terrible person uh in fact there's there's a few pieces about this on vox and vox has one where they list all the reasons why he's a terrible person, uh, including a lot of stuff about COVID and vaccine disinformation and a lot of really bad labor practices. And, you know, I'm a white person, so I do agree with, uh, you know, that take that uh, we need to stop licking the boots of these horrible billionaires. But for a couple different reasons, I, I just don't think it's all that, like, crucial. First of all, I don't think SNL has the cultural relevance it once had. And the author of this Atlantic piece says having Musk as host erodes the series reputation as a cultural gate- cultural gatekeeper. But, you know, I think that reputation was eroded a long time ago. You know, they had Trump as a host. They had Andrew Dice Clay. Sarah Palin has appeared. 
So, you know, I'm not so sure about, you know, that whole idea of how, how incredibly impactful this is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that uh, Saturday Night Live has experienced a recent period of some relevance. Just in the, the Trump era was kind of made for a certain kind of comedy. Alec Baldwin kind of came forward and made his Trump impersonation one of the signatures of the show. Mm-hmm. I think it was a little bit more in the conversation in recent years. They've done some stuff to kind of make the cast a little bit more hip and relevant. Some of those people are the ones who are having a little bit of trouble with Musk. Bowen Yang in particular uh, has been on social media asking some questions uh, about why Musk is hosting, as has A.D. Bryant and the aforementioned Chris Redd, maybe a little bit. Um, But yeah, I mean, Carolyn, there is, I mean, we'll just sort of do comedy nerd stuff for a moment and just say, you know, there is a kind of safety that exists if you're doing sketch comedy with a bunch of other people who know how to do comedy. And 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 there's even a, a sense of what the reality of the sketch is, whether it's improv or a written sketch or, or whatever you're doing. And when you introduce somebody like this into it, just as, yes, when they had Trump guest hosting, there's just a way in which you, you, can't, you don't have a pure comedy experience. You have like six people doing comedy and a seventh person who is just kind of there in this much more gray area. And and I can understand at least, and I'm sure you can, why some cast members might wonder whether that's going to be that easy to carry him through something like that. Yeah, I think that, you know, for the reason I want to watch it, because I know that it's just going to be so much more challenging for them as comedians. Like they're going to have to really be so much more on their toes and carry a lot more weight. Unless maybe, I mean, who knows, maybe he could surprise us. Like watch Elon Musk. This is like his secret, you know, talent. Other, (laughs) all of a sudden he just like whips out that he's uh, real, real fast and funny, which I highly doubt is going to be. It's not going to happen. It's not going to (laughs) happen, but you know, I figured I'd throw it out there. Uh, (laughs) But he, so, I mean, as a performer, like for them, they're going to be feeling a lot of anxiety going into this just because they don't have that safety net is gone right now. The the pacing that they're used to working with, even when it's a, an actor or a musician who isn't like a comic per se, they're still a performer. And there are just certain things that you become accustomed to and know how to do and react and, you know, where where to go as a performer. And he just is not going to have that. No, you have to have kind of a relationship with the camera, too. And even some of the athletes that they've had on, like Peyton Manning, Charles Barkley, if you go back far enough, Fran Tarkenton, they were really good because they've been talking to the camera for years, you know, and, and they sort of know uh, how to have that relationship. I do want to say also that Saturday Night Live has this very kind of complicated identity. This guy, Jim Downey, who's Robert Downey Jr.'s brother, I think, is has been in charge forever of political humor uh, and weekend update and stuff like that. And he's, you know, there's all kinds of speculation about what his actual political leanings are, but he has made an effort, I think, over the years to keep it kind of value neutral so that, you know, you'd be as likely to get a Biden joke as a Trump joke or, or, or whatever. And I think every time they do this, and you know Lauren Michael is like sucking up to Elon Musk and kind of saying, well, we won't take it too far. And that's a problem. I think. I mean, I think comedy needs permission to go too far. And when the object of your humor is standing right next to you, it's a little harder to do. But speaking of comedy, we're going to do a little bridge here. We're going to even have a clip for it because here's Elon Musk on what is apparently the greatest sitcom of all time. Like, uh, 
Dubs family. All right, forget that. There's the machines are the machines have turned against us. I do. I be, and it's starting to feel like maybe Elon Musk is making his move right now and injecting some virus into us. Well, yeah, Rolling Stone has picked the 100 best sitcoms of all time. They had four writers working on it. Uh, we'll just I'll give you just the kind of top ten to give you a sense of. Uh, at least the breadth of their uh, of their approach, and I'll do it Letterman style, starting with number ten, uh, the Larry Sanders Show, number nine, Parks and Recreation, number eight, The Honeymooners, number seven, Mary Tyler Moore Show, uh, number six, Mash, number five, All in the Family, number four, I Love Lucy, number three, Seinfeld, number two, Cheers, and number one, The Simpsons, from which we were just trying to play a clip in which Elon Musk appeared. So. I don't know, Bill. Maybe we could just start with one thing that you and I were kind of writing back and forth a little bit today. It's uh, looking at the whole 100 sitcom list. I'm realizing a that there isn't just one thing that's a sitcom. There's, uh, I think it's evolved and changed a lot over the years. But that we have a real special relationship with these, uh, some of these sitcoms too. The ones we love, they do certain things for us. Uh, and I'm guessing, as a media studies professor, you have some thoughts about what those things are. Yeah, I I love sitcoms and sitcoms have been kind of like this ongoing presence in my life i'm i'm old enough now that sitcoms have been a presence in my life for decades and they've always given me a lot of pleasure but over those decades um the whole sitcom form has really really changed and evolved a lot um and of course you know i i've been changing and so as these as these programs are changing and we're also growing and we're changing i think for a lot of people they they continue to to almost play like this this touchstone role in our life you know for one thing they're really easy to watch they're they're short they're quick um usually there's a pattern where things get easily resolved in 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 that 22 minutes or whatever it is although these days they're try- as they're trying to stretch the form that's not always necessarily the case and some of my favorites make it pretty high on this list um Seinfeld is way up there at i think like 2 or 3, three. curb your enthusiasm is like 11 or 12 um, and of course, the two things that those have in common are Larry David. And, you know, so for me, there's, you know, can you find something that you really identify with these shows? And I think we all find our different things to identify with. And my wife is absolutely convinced that there is no one closer to me in popular culture than the Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's not necessarily flattering, but I, <laughs> she means it with affection. Um, my ringtone on her phone is even the theme song. And so I think we relate to the ones that we see ourselves in. Um, and so they, they speak to something about how the culture develops, but also how we as human beings grow and develop over time. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I want to say some more about it, but I want to hear from you, Carolyn. I don't know, just in general, I know you've been doing some sitcom uh, binging uh, during the, the pandemic. I don't know. What did, what did you take away from this list? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because during the pandemic, like we've had all this extra time and, uh, you know, you kind of ran out of new things to watch. And 
um, my roommate Alex and I ended up kind of doing a deep dive into older stuff. And uh, it, I agree with Bill that there's like a certain comfort that comes from that and like sharing favorite sitcoms from the past. Uh, I mean, and we went deep. We actually have just recently uh, rewatched almost all of I Love Lucy, which is a favorite of mine. And uh, of course that is, you know, right at the top of this list as, and deservedly so. I mean, it really holds up in a lot of, in a lot of ways, some episodes, not, not as much, but it really still is hilarious and wonderful. And I agree also like Curb Your Enthusiasm, Seinfeld. Yes. Great. Um, but, uh, and I love that this list had the comeback on it. Mm. That yeah. It's a great show. And I feel like it never got the attention that it really deserved. And I think Lisa Kudrow was just truly spectacular in that. And it was a really well put together show. But, uh, you know, this list is interesting because, like I said, not only did we rewatch I Love Lucy, but we kind of went back. We've watched Frasier. Uh, I introduced Alex to Curb Your Enthusiasm, which he had never really seen. Um, and uh, just even like catching things like old like Laverne and Shirley, like shows that I had never really watched in full. I have kind of gone back and sort of tried to watch maybe not the whole thing, but episodes of. So this list was more interesting to me right now because I feel like I have actually watched more of these that were, that kind of came before my time. I've gone back and revisited uh, recently. And I think a lot of people have been kind of revisiting older shows or shows that they used to watch because it is, it's comforting. There is something really wonderful about sitcoms because they're, they, they're, there's the soothing nature of them and these characters that you kind of know and love. And even if it's a character, you a show like that you didn't watch before, you're familiar with what the character is. So there is a certain ease of getting into them. Yeah, so I, I think that um, one of the, my takeaways from this, I mean, I've thought a lot about sitcoms uh, over the years. By the way, my version of the comeback would be Buffalo Bill, which is on this uh, list. Uh, it's a much older uh, sitcom. It starred Dabney Coleman, the young Gina Davis. It was her first uh, gig of any significance, I, I think, uh, and a whole bunch of other people. And he basically played Bill O'Reilly, except that Bill O'Reilly didn't exist at the time. This is decades before Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and it's just terrific. And I've gone back and looked at clips from it. I still think it's funny. Anyway, uh, what I, one of the things that I think a lot about sitcoms is that they are a way of processing usually one of two, or in some cases, both of two experiences, being in a family and having a job, right? So, I mean, a lot of the sitcoms that we really love are about a workplace. Uh, there's usually a Mary Tyler Moore type figure or Judd Hirsch in Taxi, someone who's kind of an every person who kind of, you know, is the Charlie Brown, is the person who kind of is our stand-in, watching all this insanity unfold, and then you have people who are kind of in touch with different realities, people who are horrible people like Danny DeVito's character on, on Taxi, and all kinds of, all the people that you really ultimately do encounter uh, in, in your job, and, and you, you have to learn how to laugh at or with some of the people in your actual workplace and tolerate those differences and maybe even celebrate them and enjoy having somebody really wacky or difficult or, you know, at least find some way to deal with it. And it's the same with our families, too. Now, I think one of the things that did happen over the last 20 or so years is that there was this kind of sense that sitcom idealized the family or at least comforted us about the family. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that happened gradually, maybe starting with All in the Family – 
family, but certainly with shows like Married with Children and, and The Simpsons, uh, was this idea that, well, maybe families are really screwed up, you know, and, and that they're, you know, we should just sort of accept the fact that um, families don't necessarily function the way that they're supposed to. But, Bill, I do feel like sitcoms are very much a way that, well, Carol, Carolyn, I think, correctly said they comfort us. And one way they comfort us is just about getting to la- getting us to laugh about two very stressful situations, dealing with one's family and dealing with one's coworkers. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. For myself, I know that as a kid, uh, this is when this habit began. Um, my, my family life, honestly, was, was really challenging uh, when I was young. And a sitcom and a bowl of some salty snack or something was a real oasis for me. Um, I think that's a lot of, uh, recently we talked about WandaVision on the nose. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of what that show is trying to touch on, right? How we can use a sitcom like a salve or a warm tub, uh, you know, when life is just actually outside of the screen, really, really heartbreaking at times. Um, I know Lori and I have been binging the first Bob Newhart show lately. And, you know, even though, like, if you compare it to today's sitcoms, it's, it's you know, fairly primitive. But it also was a real development at the time with this kind of cool egalitarian marriage, which, you know, and no kids. And, you know, that show started in 1972, where that was just four years between that show and the Andy Griffith show, which was very, very different. And I think from 68 to 72, it just shows how much America was changing during that really, you know, tumultuous time period. And then, of course, television follows along more often than not, rather than lead the way. Um, so well, I think also can... the, the the just the the argument that people's uh, people who were in, were in psychiatric treatment that their neuroses uh, and their difficulties could be funny in a way that wasn't necessarily denigrating, but kind of you know psychotherapy had been maybe something that had been stuffed under the rug during the 1960s. Right. And, you know, there's a sense, oh no, they're just basically like us. They're maybe a little bit more difficult, <laughs> but and they're kind of funny and endearing, right? Yeah, some of the best parts of that show are those group therapy Mm -hmm. uh, sessions. And in fact, I was asking Lori just last night, I wonder if people would kind of like get angry about that now, because I agree with you that it was we were laughing, but not in a horribly denigrating way. But I wonder if that show was on the air now, whether, you know, people would take exception to that and like consider it to be demeaning. I don't think it was. Um, I think it was more kind of like fondly poking at ourselves. But um, yeah, 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 I I, I think you're right. I thought about those same things, Carolyn, you know, do the the standards change? And I'm not sure that they do in comedy. I mean, the rule that we always talk about in comedy is if you can make it funny enough, you can do almost anything. And so, I mean, Arrested Development was about with people with just terrible, terrible psychiatric problems and family dynamics. And, you know, I mean, every possible, you know, way that things could get screwed up. Uh, and, And it certainly had a pretty jaundiced eye towards pretty much all of its 
characters. And even though uh, Jason Bateman kind of played sort of a more or less halfway normal person trying to make things work, I mean, everybody was kind of terrible. Uh, and, you know, in Seinfeld, everybody's kind of terrible. Jerry's the closest mm-hmm. thing to a normal person. And Carolyn, I sort of wonder, I think one of the things about comedy is you can you can ask questions that would make people squirm in other situations. Yeah, I think that comedy is actually at its best when it's at its worst, you know, <laughs> meaning that, uh, I, I mean, arrested development. Yeah, like when you have Lucille Bluth, the matriarch, just being a, a total drunk bitch. And then, you know, you have these adults acting like grown. They're 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 just children. They're overgrown children. Uh, and, and their inability to take responsibility for anything and move themselves forward. Like these are people that you're watching and there is the kind of the sense that it's funny. And also you're like, well, at least I'm more together than Buster Bluth. Mm. (laughs) There there you go. You've got your salty snack and you can feel superior to Buster. All right. We should probably take a break here pretty soon. I do want to say to Bill's point about the Bob Newhart show that in the uh, series for all mankind, uh, there is a scene. This isn't a spoiler, really. These uh, three astronauts get stuck on the moon for a while. They're not in danger, but they're just going to have to stay there longer. And it's earlier in history. And so they have for some reason or other, basically the only videotape they have that works is of the Bob Newhart show, and they just watch it over and over again until it breaks, and then they start actually trying to stage it or recreate it uh, among themselves, and one of the three astronauts is like a little bit too involved with the Bob Newhart show, but for the rest of their lives, they greet one another with, hi, Bob, hi, Bob, hi, Bob. They all call each other Bob. All right, so we have to take a little break here, uh, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about, oh, I have to warn you, we're going to take a little break here, and if you're Listening live here on Friday, the break might not sound that great unless we fix this problem. So just bear with us. We kind of have to play the break for complicated reasons. And then we'll be back to talk about this is a robbery. Okay, I lied. Everything works uh, because Gene Amatruda walked in. And all these machines are Gene's subjects, and they just obey him. He doesn't have to do anything. He just stands there. He's like the alpha dog. They all start cowering. So everything's working again. And Carolyn Payne uh, and Bill Usman are our guests uh, here on our panelists uh, on The Nose today. Uh, we're going to talk right now is about uh, This is a Robbery, the world's biggest art heist is the full title, uh, a four-part Netflix docuseries on the 1990 robbery of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. This is a very Boston-y. Uh, Carolyn's going to be in her element, a very Boston-y docuseries. I don't know if Boston is really an adjective. So uh, let's hear a, a little clip. This is from episode one, uh, and you're getting kind of a little description uh, of at least part of the heist. It's confounding. It's hard to figure out why you would, in a museum with priceless pieces of art, waste precious time with this finial that is essentially worthless. They had taken a Chinese artifact. It's a Chinese coup. It's old. It is somewhat valuable, but not even close to some of the other items of art just in that room. Was the Chinese artifact a diversion? 
There was one, the self-portrait of Rembrandt, where his eyes sort of follow you around the room. They tried to steal that, and they took it down off the wall, and for some reason it was left behind, and they don't know if it was just too big or it was, they forgot it. One thing that stuck out to me was the Rembrandt etching. You know, it's the side of like a postage stamp, but the frame it was in isn't much bigger. And yet somebody wasted time unscrewing that and then taking apart the whole frame and taking only the etching, right? If you're carrying out the biggest heist in history and you don't know if the police are coming, and you have limited time to get the most valuable artwork. Are you going to waste your time with an etching that isn't even that expensive and waste precious moments taking it out of a frame that you could probably stick in your pocket regardless? I would say no. All right, so that's kind of a melange of law enforcement officials and um, Shelley Murphy, who's a reporter for the Boston Globe, who's one of the big sort of major uh, running commentators all the way through this. Um, this series kind of mixes people who are in law enforcement, people who are in museums and the art world, uh, a, a fair number of journalists who've covered uh, the underworld, shall we say, uh, and uh, then a few people and, and just sort of people who are just no one little story or something. So, Carolyn, we'll start with you you, you, because you're a Bostonian. Uh, first of all, just give me your just overall reaction to the series. I loved it. So I binged this the day it came out. Uh, growing up in Boston, uh, I this was kind of just like always part of like folklore almost like people just talked about it. It would, it would just randomly get injected it, like into a conversation. Like somebody would be talking about a museum and then all of a sudden or art or anything. And somebody would just bring this up and everyone, I feel I, I would hear crazy theories about all sorts of things. And you'd hear all these like little inside stories. So I was kind of always fascinated by this. Uh, I actually, um, I double majored in college and art history was one of my majors. And uh, so I kind of, I, I approached this really excitedly because it sort of touched base on so many things that have uh, intrigued me and that I'm into. So I enjoyed it. I mean, I will sit and watch pretty much any true crime documentary, though. So I'm an easy target, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I feel like this is sort of more somehow. First of all, I, I think it's probably clear I really enjoyed this uh, as well. We should say that this was, until quite recently, the largest art heist in history. Uh, it's got some competition now. Uh, there were 13 works stolen. The concert by Johannes Vermeer is believed to be the most valuable uh, stolen art object or maybe a most valuable stolen object, I don't know, in the world. Uh, and, and you know, it's it, it has been a very, very difficult crime to solve. But, you know, Bill, I feel like somehow or other, if this were – I'd also listen to WBUR's excellent uh, podcast uh, a few years ago about this very same story. Uh, and loved that too. If this were just about a crime, I don't think it would be as interesting as it is, but it's hard for me to exactly express what else it's about. Well, I think you touched on it in one of the emails that we all exchanged when you talked about some of the quirky little characters. I think that's actually the best part of it. Um, I agree with you about that. Um, I, I enjoyed it also. Um, so I think we can give it, you know, three thumbs up. I'm not sure I liked it as much as you and, and Caroline did. Um, I think it's a good example of the type of investigative work um, that when you start picking at the threads of something, 
the connections can start to become really interesting. Um, but also maybe that's part of the, the problem for me is that they didn't go far enough with some of those explorations. So at one point they start alluding to some IRA involvement. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got like really interested and excited about that, but that didn't go anywhere. Uh, not that that's the filmmaker's fault, since it does seem kind of like that that was a blind alley. Um, but then you have to kind of ask, okay, should it have been introduced at all? Except that the whole point of it in some ways is this labyrinth of blind alleys. Um, so, but then some of the people that appear actually do become really, really interesting, colorful characters. And I do want to say it's got this great local connection. It's got a Hartford Manchester connection, which somehow I had forgotten about or never really took note of or something because when that started to come up i i really perked up and i was like oh this is pretty cool here that you know this you know some of these like incredibly valuable works might be like lurking you know over near you know buckland hills mall or something yeah, to me, Carolyn, it's a little bit like a big, huge Shakespeare uh, comedy that's happening, you know, with a whole bunch of uh, cast members and different levels of society. It's kind of the Midsummer Night's Dream of of true crime docu docu series in the sense that there are all these characters kind of popping up, rude mechan mechanicals and more elegant people, and 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 that you're really kind of seeing this parade of humankind <laughs> as all these people kind of come forward. And and uh, I mean, I could go on quite a bit about this, and I'm supposed to be asking you a question. I do want to say one of the things that I think they do really well is because eventually organized crime, uh, uh, what we might call the Cosa Nostra or something, uh, seems to have something to do with all this. Except you start to realize that The Sopranos was a bunch of mafia guys trying to grapple with the fact that they would never quite have the glory and luster of what they saw in the movies, that The Godfather was just like so much bigger than what they could be. Polly Walnuts, you know, it's more real to him than his own own life and and now you see in this documentary that these people should be so lucky as to be the people in the sopranos there's a way, way in which this that whole thing is kind of run down in more small time than uh, we we blow it up into but carolyn I, I do feel like you know they're just if you if you enjoy strange people and i think maybe there's a particular kind of boston strange person that there's a way in which this can be very pleasing yeah, absolutely. I think that that's what makes uh, documentaries interesting are the people that they interview. And this one really did not disappoint. Like you said, it has a wonderful cast of characters. Uh, I find listening to Boston ac accents like really that's that's another oddly soothing thing to me. Just hearing that uh, like the, the accents of all these uh, characters, the, the these uh mobsters or would-be mobsters that they have are yeah definitely like they're kind of like the extras on the sopranos uh that you can't even imagine how they were carrying out something like this and uh it, it i i i think that that's to me one of the things that like hooks me with these true crime documentaries and and any documentary is like these the the people the way that you really uh, get attached to the 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 character, and then realizing that this is a real person. Um, and I I just thought that this was really 
well, because uh, I mean, it's four episodes, so it's pretty long. And it does, I agree with Bill, like it kind of follows like all these threads. It sort of goes all over the place. But I found that to be really interesting because it felt like they were trying to like leave no stone unturned. And uh, I think the editing was really great with it. And I loved the like music scoring with it. And also when we're talking about characters in this, we cannot leave out talking about Miles Connor, <laughs> who is, I went down such a rabbit hole, like Googling him. He is worth the Googling and, <laughs> and the questions and concerns and comedy value of everything he has to offer. He is a character that I definitely uh, would like to like more of. Right. Well, except I don't think you would, I mean, he's like a lot of incredibly dangerous people. Uh, he's, he's kind of amusing and charming, but he's an incredibly dangerous person. Um, no, I don't so, want to go near him right. ever. I would never need to, but I am fascinated with him and I feel like you could do a whole documentary about him. Probably. Uh, yeah. Apparently Jonathan McNichol tried to, uh, uh, our producer tried to persuade him to be on the show or almost persuaded him to be on the show about something. I don't know. We've been sort of circling around some of these characters over the years. Well, you know, Bill, you know, Carolyn talked about editing and this isn't something that the Barnacle Brothers invented at all. But, you know, increasingly, I think these days, very clever filmmakers and, and people who are making any kind of thing that involves the filming of reality have realized it's a mistake to think that your interview or the usable footage starts when some kind of formal questioning begins. A lot of times what's going on is the aside mm. stuff. I mean, the example I was giving to you guys, there's this very funny, kind of very minor character. She's like the ex-sister-in-law of some guy who might have been involved in the heist. But the interview with her starts over her drinking something out of a mug, and she puts it down, and she goes, I hate water. Which <laughs> you know? has nothing to do with anything that they're going to talk about, except that somehow or other you've established you know, the kind of person that, that she is, and she's very spirited and quirky. They, they begin, One of the first characters we meet is this former museum security guard, but she's this kind of quirky woman with big glasses and a gray bob who sits across like on her couch and like impersonates all the voices of everybody who was I mean either Colin Barnacle is really really lucky to get all these really interesting people or he has some kind of gift for making them be their best selves yeah probably a combination of both mm. um, but I also love I in all documentaries I love those moments that when the filmmaker is smart enough to start the video you know you know before the as you said the actual interview begins and show us some of that and then the moments after the person has stopped stopped talking to linger on them for a little bit it's so revealing those are such really really fantastic moments um when when filmmakers are are smart enough to do that of course it can be used really manipulatively also uh, you know, Hitchcock, you know, riffing off of um, a Russian theorist used to talk about how through juxtaposition, you can just really change how people see uh, a video still or a moment in a film. If you show, you know, someone with a, a grin on their face and then you show a bowl of soup, you think the person's hungry. But if you show, you know, a woman in a bikini, you think the person is lecherous you know, that kind of thing. So, so that can be done manipulatively. I, I don't think that Barnacle does in this case. I think, as you say, he just really brings out the, the, the quirkiness, the individual personalities that make all of these people 
such interesting characters, almost as if it's, you know, a, a, a fiction script. Um, Miles Connor, you know, that, that you guys mentioned, he's almost like an American legend. He's like a, you know, a Rob Roy McGregor or something. Somebody tells a little story about how supposedly he went through surgery without anesthesia after being shot four or five times. So, you know, he, he is almost like kind of like this like little not well-known American legendary figure, but in real life is, you know, a horrible, horrible killer. <laughs> Super dangerous person, yes. So, yeah, yeah I, I do want to say that for me it was also interesting just to – there's a person I know uh, who is in this uh, docuseries, Ed Mahoney from the Hartford Current, uh, and he's terrific. And I have to say, Ed Mahoney and I worked together in the same building for 20 years, and I, we weren't particularly close. We just are very, very different kinds of people. So I think I saw Ed Mahoney talk more – in this documentary than I did in 20 years all accumulated at the Hartford Current. But he's just terrific. Somehow or other, you they put the camera on him, and he's a terrific storyteller, and he's, like, imitating certain things, and he's uh, just conveying, you know, what it's like to, like, Bobby Gentile gets out of prison. He wants to have lunch with Ed, and he, he makes Ed buy him two lunches. He takes one of them home. <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly how down at the heels the mafia or, or organized crime or whatever you want to call it is at this point. But but yeah, there is that kind of sense of, of people coming alive. And um, and for that matter, Ryan McGuigan, who was the lawyer for Bobby Gentile, um, yeah. he's really good on camera. He's also a kind of Hartford figure. So, uh, so yeah, Carolyn, I don't know if there's anything left to say other, uh, other than how much we loved this thing. Although I think the other thing that it does do sort of, maybe not quite as well as it does, you know, getting the kind of rascal side of all this, it does sort of remind you, I, I don't know, I suddenly realized I hadn't been to a museum in a really long time, you know, and just looking at all this stolen art and looking at the gardener's interiors and stuff like that. It does remind you how wonderful art can be, even in this context. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I guess during the pandemic, I did all the virtual tours of museums, like the Louvre did a virtual thing uh, to, you know, keep up art in your life. Um, I do I do think that the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum deserves endorsing in this moment if you have never been. And one of the most brilliant things that the museum did following this heist is they hung the empty frames back up on the wall in the exact locations, as you see in the documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really powerful to see that when you're in the museum, to just see this empty hole where you know this gr once great work of art once hung, and it's still this unsolved crime, uh, which feels infuriating that they can't put this together. Mm -hmm. um, so but I do think go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum if you haven't ever gone or go and give it a second look. It's a really uh, it's a particularly magical museum. And mm. I love that guy, the reporter from The Globe, who co compares it to the Dorsey. Kevin Cullen. Yeah, he goes, people are going to think I'm a big snob when I make this analogy. Uh, anyway, we have to take a quick break here so we'll have time to make some other endorsements on the other side.
All right. Our technical producer today is noted uh, art thief, cat burglar, pastor. Uh, and uh, the producer of this episode is uh, Jonathan McPants, who produces pretty much all of the noses that we ever do. Uh, and uh, we're going to now make some endorsements now with Carolyn Payne and Bill Usman. So, uh, Bill, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, so earlier in the show, I talked about how comforting sitcoms are and you can just sort of relax with them. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. I'm warning people uh, with my endorsement. I want to endorse another uh, four-part documentary series um, called Exterminate All the Brutes. Uh, it's by Raul, Raul Peck, who is a great, great filmmaker. Um, and the title comes from a, it's actually originates in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Uh, but Peck builds this film around a nonfiction book that uses that title uh, by a Swedish um, historian. And a couple, of, and then he refers to a couple other uh, really important books. It's it's a four part documentary about the history of colonialism, genocide, white supremacy, and it is incredibly powerful and and I think incredibly important. And the way he goes about constructing it, it's a lot of his own family stories, and he uses dramatic reenactments. Um, with Josh Hartnett, uh, you know, in them. And he uses some animation and historical footage and contemporary music that he uses ironically. The creativity that has gone into making this incredibly difficult story compelling uh, for people to to watch and to stick with, I can't recommend this high, highly enough. Exterminate all, right. all the brutes. Exterminate all the brutes. All right. Uh, and uh, Carolyn Payne, what are you going to recommend? Um, all right. Two shows real quick. Uh, one is on HBO with Kate Winslet, Mayor of Easttown. Yep. I'm um, addicted. I'm addicted. It is. It's great. So good. And uh, Kate Winslet is just uh, wonderful in it. And uh, they do the they nail the Delco accent, which is the that kind of uh, that Philadelphia accent. She does an amazing job. Some of the actors are a little over the top with theirs, but it's good. Uh, I mean, the acting in it is just impeccable. I have no idea where the story is going and I'm hooked and uh, watch it if you aren't. And then um, if you are looking for another true crime documentary that has some fascinating characters, <laughs> so to speak, uh, it, it's kind of a little bit salacious and a little bit frothy, but why did you kill me on Netflix? Uh, it's a documentary about a woman who was killed and, uh, her family uses MySpace. Uh, it, this took place, you know, like a decade ago, her family uses MySpace to try to catfish the killer. Uh, and, uh, it is really, it, it is fascinating. And again, the people in it that they interview, specifically the mother of the young woman who was killed, is uh, she really has a character arc throughout this documentary that is really quite intriguing. Um, so if you're into a good true crime uh, documentary, that one on Netflix is is worth the watch. 
Why did you kill me? All right. So um, I'm going to recommend in the current issue of The New Yorker by Gideon Lewis Krauss uh, a piece called The UFO Papers. It's a long-form piece. You also may have heard it uh, discussed uh, on The New Yorker Radio Hour last Sunday. Uh, It's about something that we've also addressed on our show, and it involves at least one person whom we've had on our show a few times. Uh, It's about the sort of evolution of UFOs. And really sort of, you know, in the 1940s, uh, as it points out, like half of Americans were convinced that they were a real thing and, you know, that there was something to this whole story. And it became more and more of a fringe and kind of laughable set of beliefs. And now, of course, it's circling back around and the amount of uh, official weight behind the idea uh, that, yes, there are things in the sky that uh, are impossible to explain uh, using conventional kinds of explanations uh, that we've sort of moved back into a different kind of conversation. Uh, Although we're all very blasé about this also to a certain degree. The comedian Nate Bargatze in his recent special, he said, you know, I, I told my wife they just announced that UFOs are real. And she just went about her day, um, which is a little bit, uh, I think, of what's in this piece, too, that we're all sort of a little bit numb to the fact that actually the government is saying these days, no, actually, you were right all along, UFO wackos. You're not wacko at all. There's stuff up there that we have no explanation for. This also ties in a little bit to, uh, I'll just quickly endorse uh, For All Mankind, which is something we talked about uh, on the news a few weeks ago, and I'm wrapping it up now. I had It's two seasons, and I hadn't finished it all, and it kind of gets into this whole question of the weaponization of space, so I would really recommend uh, that you stay with that. Next Next week on The Nose, we are planning to talk about Mayor of Easttown. Alas, Carolyn and Bill will probably not be back to do that, although they're both apparently watching it. Uh, we don't know who will be with us, but you'll find out next Friday. Water 